Let's open our Bibles tonight to the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49 this evening. And uh, for the past six weeks on Sunday evenings, we've been preaching through the blessings that Jacob has uh, pronounced upon his sons while Jacob is on his deathbed. And as we have studied these portions of Scripture, we have noted that they can be understood uh, both dispositionally, meaning according to the personalities of his boys. And, you know, Jacob knew his, his boys. He knew them better than anybody would have known them. And these are not, again, let me remind you, these are not children, but these are grown men, many of which uh, have their own children and even grandchildren at this stage in life. And Jacob has had many years to watch them, to watch their behavior and the things that they do. And so many of the things that he says are related to the dispositions of the boys, the way that they behave, the way that they've shown their character to be. But we also understand as we study this passage of Scripture that these verses can be understood in a dispensational sense. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, uh, verse number 1 says this, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. That term, last days, has very distinct prophetic connotations to it. And they range anywhere from the times of the Gentiles that you and I live in right now uh, Paul said, "This know that in the last days perilous times shall come. But it also reflects the idea of the great day of the Lord. When we speak of the day of the Lord, we speak of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power and in glory. Sometimes that uh, phrase uh, reflects the entire tribulation period. Sometimes that phrase simply uh, reflects the day on which the Lord will return, known only unto God to the Father. So as we study this passage of Scripture, we understand there's more going on here than just a father's observations. The Spirit of God is uh, anointing or moving or inspiring Jacob to say the things that he is saying. And uh, God is giving him some things. Some of them he could very easily have known just by being their father. But then there are other things that Jacob says that there is no way him or anyone else walking the earth at that time could have known. These prophecies provide for us a timeline for the nation of Israel from the time in which they came out of Egypt and they were a nation, as it were, a nation proper. When they went into Egypt, they're just 75 souls, just a family. But when they come out of Egypt, there's some probably 2 million people leaving Egypt after 450 years of bondage and 450 years of growth and uh, population increase. And so they leave as a nation. And from that point down to the culmination of all of the promises that God has made them, these blessings provide us a timeline of that time in their history. We talked a little bit about uh, Reuben and uh, looked at how that Reuben represented the unified nation of Israel, that though they had all this promise, they would squander it, they'd squander their opportunity, and uh, they would not enjoy the blessings of God upon them as God would have had them to. And we looked at Simeon and Levi, and they picture for us the divided kingdom. And, of course, that took place after the death of Solomon. And uh, they both are scattered, Simeon and Levi. That's what Jacob says, says you're going to be divided and scattered, dispersed. And both of them were uh, scattered. But Simeon, who represents the northern ten tribes, uh, is shown as being completely done away with. There's no redeeming qualities 
in uh, that tribal history, and that represents the northern ten tribes. And then the Levites, of course, they uh, were dispersed throughout the nation of Israel, and their scattering became a blessing because God used them to bless the nation of Israel. Immediately after that, you have Judah pictured for us, and that pictures the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I, I wish I had time to say everything I wanted to say about that because uh, there is so much in that portion of Scripture. Uh, next, you have Zebulun spoken of, and Zebulun speaks of the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews all across the world. Issachar speaks of the servitude that the Jews have experienced all throughout their history. But tonight, as we approach the prophecy concerning uh, Dan, the son of Jacob, and Bilhah, the handmaiden of Rachel, uh, we enter into a new phase, or let's put it this way, a new event uh, rises upon the horizon of the prophecy of the Jewish history. And we are introduced to a period of their time that we call, Bible students call, uh, Jacob's Trouble. The average person would know a little better as the Great Tribulation Period. Now, for you to understand the dynamic of this, you have to understand that God is dealing specifically with how He dealt with the Jewish nation. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about it here in a little while. But you have to understand that after Calvary, after the uh, temple was destroyed, and the times of the Gentiles began to be underway after Titus uh, destroyed the temple and they sacked Jerusalem and the Jews were scattered to the winds. I've heard people describe it this way. I sort of like describing it this way, that uh, it's like God hit the stopwatch on His dealings with the Jewish nation. Now, Paul made it very clear that God has not forgotten the Jews. He's not cast them off. It's not that God does not care about them or have a plan for them. And certainly God can deal with the Jewish individual today just as He can the Gentile individual, and I'm thankful that He does. And certainly the New Testament church is comprised not just of Gentiles, but of Jews also. But as a nation proper, God is not dealing with them in the same manner that He was before that time set in. The holy city is trodden underfoot by Gentiles, and we know that's true even to this day. Uh, the place where the temple ought to be sitting, the Dome of the Rock sits, a mosque sits. And Jerusalem is certainly not wholly within uh, Jewish authority and, and Jewish reach. So we are definitely within the time of the Gentiles. And God has sort of put aside His dealings with the Jews as a nation. Sometimes as you study prophecy, uh, you'll struggle because you'll think, well, you know, God's talking one minute about something that happened, uh, you know, 3,500 years ago, and then in this next moment, He's talking about something that, has yet to happen, and why would that be so? And, you know, you'll think, well, this is something that happened 2,000 years ago when Christ was walking the earth, and then in the next verse, God is talking about something that we've still not yet seen happen. The reason is because God was dealing and writing and ministering and prophesying to the Jewish nation. And so the church age was not in the scope of their vision and of their view. You may have seen the picture before, I think, when we did our Apollos course, we actually printed out and handed it out. You may have seen the picture sometimes of of the Old Testament prophet as he looks in his uh, line of sight, looks over several mountain peaks and he sees big truths and big things. He sees the, the birth of the Savior and, uh, you know, he, he sees the millennial kingdom and he sees the, the time of the tribulation. He sees all these things. But in betwixt those mountain peaks, there are valleys that include things like the suffering of the Savior, uh, the church age that we live in, things that were not visible to them in their prophetic gaze. As we study the prophecy concerning Dan, I think it gives us an insight into a very distinct and selective group of people 
and their interaction in the day of tribulation. Not, you know, I don't know how many questions I'll answer for you this evening, but I hope I answer a few as we study this, because I've titled this tonight, A Word About the Seed According to the Flesh. People have often asked this question, what makes a Jew a Jew? Well, let me say this, that there are two answers to that question. To be a Jew according to the flesh, meaning to be a descendant of Abraham, means to have the ethnicity, and I don't know to what degree, I don't know what genetic or uh, DNA, uh, you know, uh, guidelines that God judges it by. I guess it's known only to God Himself. But it means to be a literal Jew of the flesh in one sense. But we understand through Paul's writings that uh, to be a Jew is not just a fleshly thing, but there is a spiritual aspect to that relationship with God as well. And I think Dan presents to us the secular Jew at the time of the tribulation period and presents to us what is going to happen to him and a few clues as to how the tribulation will unfold. So let's, let's read a few verses and then we'll pray and jump right in. Let's read verse number 16 through 18. The Word of God says this, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you give clarity of thought to my words and, Lord, that they would have a real and meaningful and relevant application to our lives where we sit right now in this moment. I pray, Lord, that you give a special blessing to these that have come out Lord, at a time when they may, their flesh may have had a good excuse to stay in, but they chose rather to renew the new man and to be renewed in their mind uh, by the preaching of the Word of God. I pray that you'd bless them and help them and use them this evening. Father, we love you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we've read this passage of Scripture, there's a few things I think worth saying about the tribe of Dan and worth pointing out before we get started. Now, again, I've told you that I believe Dan, to me, represents... The Jew, the secular Jew, the Jew that is a Jew according to the blood that runs through his veins, but not according to to any faith that would be within his heart. This is what some have called an incomplete Jew, if you've heard that terminology before, but a Jew that has not accepted the Messiah, but rather is steeped either in their religious orthodoxy or, as is common in this day that we live in, in their uh, secularism and sometimes secular atheism as well. By the way, it would shock you to know how many powerful people in this world uh, are Jews according to their ethnicity, but are also atheists. The Jew, by and large, is in darkness in this day that we live in. Now, Paul makes it clear to us that the individual Jew can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, just as a Gentile could. God loves them. God will save them. But that the Jews collectively as a nation, there is a veil over their eyes in the reading of Moses. All of the things in the Old Testament that would point towards the Messiah, all the things that you'd think they'd look at and, and say, well, of course Jesus is the Son of God. It seems as though they are blind to those things. And it's what theologians might call judicial blindness. They rejected the Messiah. And because they did that, because they refused to see, they're not going to see. Now, the individual can turn to the Messiah, but the Jews as a collective nation, it is not going to happen. I promise you, you're not going to see Jewish revival, as it were, uh, until the day when the Lord sits upon the throne. There is judicial blindness over them as a nation because they rejected the Lord of glory. They pushed Him away. They turned Him away when He came. And because of that, uh, their eyes are blinded as a nation in a collective sense 
to the beauty and truth of the gospel. So this is the Jew that we're talking about. This is the person that we're dealing with. And it's interesting that Dan should characterize them because there's a few things that we notice if we study his history. I want you to notice first off that he knows the tribe of Dan as a part of the nation. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about it here in a second, but you understand that Dan is not a child of Leah. Dan is not a child of Rachel. Dan is a child of Bilhah, who is the handmaiden of Rachel. Dan did not have a very strong claim to an inheritance among the other brothers that were standing there on that day. And yet Jacob acknowledges that Dan is his son, and that he is going to have a part in the inheritance. Now, that's important, and here's why. Because uh, we understand that there are certain earthly temporal promises that God has made to the Jewish nation that apply, very simply, to the Jewish nation. These are earthly promises. Uh, let me tell you something. When God promised Abraham, He gave him a title deed to that land. And the Jews have never totally possessed the land that God promised to Abraham. That was a physical, tangible, earthly place. And that place, that title deed was given to a physical, tangible, earthly people. There are many other promises throughout the Old Testament that God made to the Jewish nation in particular. You know, He talked about that there'd be an angel that would go before Him into Canaan. And if they would follow the Lord, and if they'd be obedient to the Lord, that angel would go before Him and drive out their enemies. And uh, God was not making this to some select little group of people that had, that had believed on the Lord. He was making these promises to a nation. We see that still evidence today. Let me say this very clearly. Though God is not dealing with the Jewish nation in a collective sense, that doesn't mean that God breaks His promises that He has made to the Jewish nation. Study and think with me for a moment about all of the miraculous things that the Jews have experienced throughout their history. Have you ever known a group of people that retain a cultural ethnic identity the way that the Jews have? Wherever they go, I mean, you know, and I gave this illustration last week or a couple weeks ago, that if you were to ask me who I am, what my heritage is, I'd probably tell you I'm from East Tennessee. And if you wanted to get a little more specific, I'd say, well, I'm an American. If you wanted to get more specific, I'd say I'm a Southern American or an Appalachian American. You'd probably have to press me pretty hard for me to understand that what you mean is what, what is my ethnicity, what blood runs through my veins. I could tell you some of those things, but just to be honest, I'm like most folks. I've got ideas because mom and dad have told me and their parents told them and their parents told them, but I don't really know how accurate it is. I know I've got German in my blood and I know I've got Scotch-Irish and Welsh and things like that. And, uh, you know, But really, it's not something that we keep very close track of. The Jewish people are different. Everywhere that they've gone, they've retained their Jewishness. Uh, when they're in Europe, I mean, well, you know, they're a European Jew. When they're in Africa, they're an African Jew. If they're in Australia, they're an Australian Jew. Here, they're an American Jew. And, and so many of them, you can even tell, still by the names that have been retained. I mean, most uh, cultures, when they came to America, when they came to this great melting pot, there was a lot of name changing that went on. I mean, there was lots of folks that had a very uh, ethnically identifiable name, and they began to change. It's part of the reason we have so many Williams and Johnson and things like that in our country, because so many of the immigrants that flooded in, so that they could shed that cultural identity and have an easier time. But to this day, nine times out of ten, when you meet a Jew, you can tell it by the last name that they carry with them. You can tell it by the physical features uh, that they have. You can tell it by the cultural features that they have, and things of that sort. They have retained 
that identity. Why is that? Because God has made some promises to them that no matter how far they were scattered, if they would turn to the Lord, He'd bring them back into the land. And so still they have the vestiges of their old culture and of their old mindset. God made that promise to them. And when He made that promise, He made that promise to a physical earthly people and to a physical earthly Nation. If you were to study the history of the nation of Israel just since 1948, uh, you get you get a shocking lesson in uh, how unpredictable military ventures can be. Because time and again, enough nations that should have been able to wipe Israel off the face of the earth have lined up against them and sought to destroy them. And time and again, uh, God has allowed them to drive those nations to the sea. I mean, I'm talking about rockets, guided rockets. I don't mean 1960. I'm talking about two, three years ago. Guided rockets that were, that were, that were flown, that were sent towards into Jerusalem, just automatically detouring for no reason whatsoever. I know why that happens. And if you're a Bible believer, you know why that happens. It's because the God of Israel, He's their portion and their shield, and He's watching over them. So there are definite earthly connotations, and God has not given up on those, and Dan is a part of that. He is known as a nation, or as a part of the nation, to the Lord. But then I want you to notice number two, not only does He know them as a nation, but He knows their nature. He says this about them. He calls Dan a serpent in verse number 17, a serpent by the way. You know, just because God has made promises to the Jewish nation, that does not mean that He is blind to their iniquity. Much of the Old Testament is occupied with God dealing with the iniquity of the nation of Israel. And He denotes that there seems to be a propensity in the Jewish heart and mind of idolatry and of turning away from the Lord. It's interesting that this is addressed to Dan, because if you consider Dan's history, Dan was the first of the tribes of Israel to introduce idolatry into the nation of Israel. In Judges chapter number 18, and you can go and read it in your own time, but the first time that idolatry is introduced in a national way into the land is through the tribe of Dan. And when Jeroboam, uh, the insurrectionist, the one that we spoke a little bit about, in fact, we talked a little bit about him uh, last Sunday morning, when Jeroboam began to set up calf worship, in Israel, the place that he picked. Well, listen, I'll go ahead and read it to you. In First Kings chapter 12, verse 28 through 30, it says this, Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one, speaking of the calves, he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin. But now notice this, For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. So idolatry took a foothold in the nation of Israel through the tribe of Dan. Let me say this, that God is not blind to the secularism of the modern-day Jewish nation. I think we need to be very cautious as believers. I'm all for reaching the Jewish nation. Somebody say amen to that. I'm all for that. I think we ought to reach them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I don't think God has quit loving the Jewish people. But you understand that uh, there is a stark difference between being able to present the gospel to them and putting the gospel aside for the purpose of holding hands in ecumenicalism. And that, my friends, is a very dangerous road to walk. And a lot of these institutions and a lot of these outfits that talk about, you know, reaching the Jew and reaching the Jew, what they mean is reaching the Jew in a monetary way, but a lot of them don't mean reaching the Jew in the, in the gospel. A lot of them, what they mean is trying to help in some financial sense, but they don't mean trying to share the gospel and reach them for Jesus Christ. And I think that's a dangerous place to be in. I think we ought to reach the Jew, but I think we ought to reach him with the gospel. Somebody say amen to that. 
God is not blind to their secularism. And I would say this, that the Jews are inordinately secular amongst the rest of the world. Uh, as you consider, I mean, most of the key people in this world, I don't say most, but a lot of the key people in our country in high places of power, a lot of them, listen now, that are driving the progressive ideology that we, you and I, would claim to hate and to fight against and to stand against. I mean, it's election year and we've got a, a person running that, that would call himself a democratic socialist. And I know that is abhorrent to, to a lot of people. You understand that he's a Jew, right? Uh, uh, easy now, let's not get offended. I had a few folks with me. Let's try that. You understand, he's a Jewish man. Bernie Sanders is, is a Jewish man. I, listen, I'm not up here trying to politic. I, I'm just merely pointing this out, that secularism has taken root in the Jewish heart more than it seems to have in any other place. Why is that? Well, part of it, they've always had a propensity for idolatry. But part of it, too, is that there is a culmination that is coming. There is a, a, an event that all these things are leading towards. I want you to notice this. He knows their nature. God is not blind. Simply because He has, uh, he, he has uh, chosen and blessed the Jewish nation, He's made these promises, that doesn't mean God is blind to their idolatry or to their iniquity. He knows those things. And so I want to point this out. We won't read it, but I, I want to point you towards it. In Revelation chapter 7, there's a very interesting thing that takes place. God begins to talk about 144,000 people that uh, are Jewish witnesses that during the tribulation period are going to preach the gospel. And uh, there's going to be sort of a revival in that sense uh, of the preaching of the gospel amongst the Jewish people. And 12,000 are called from each of the varying tribes. But you'll find this, that in that time, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh take the place of Joseph and of another tribe because another tribe is missing, and that's the tribe of Dan. You'll find there are no witnesses of the tribe of Dan in Revelation chapter 7. His name is not mentioned. And I point this out, that though he knows them as a nation and he knows their nature, he does not know their name, at least in a sense. He does not overlook their rejection of the Messiah. Now, this presents a quandary to you and I. What about the Jewish nation? How will all of this be resolved? Well, that's what I want to preach on. I want you to notice three things very quickly this evening. I want you to notice verse number 16 speaks of Dan's station. It says this, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. There is a permitted role for Dan amongst the other brethren. Now, again, this is very important because no doubt Dan is standing there wondering if he'll have an inheritance, wondering if he'll have a place in the land. I mean, they knew the land had already been promised. It wasn't some big secret that one of these days they would go into the land and there'd be an, an entire kingdom and, and that there would be entire peoples that would, would be birthed through these men and that the nation would be born in that way. And no doubt Dan was wondering if he'd be included in that. He's just the son of a handmaiden. He's not a, a full child, so to speak. But Jacob makes it clear that there is a permitted role for him in the nation of Israel. And in that same way, let me say that God has not cast off even the secular Jew, but He has a plan for the secular Jew. Now, I'm not saying that extends to the actual individual. I mean, listen, if a, if a Jew in this day that we live in, if they die without accepting Christ, they go to the same devil's hell that a Gentile that rejects Christ goes to. But the Jews as a secular nation, God has a plan and a purpose for them. But I want you to notice that though there is a permitted role, there is a pretended relationship involved here. Because he says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now, there are two connotations to that phrase in my mind. One is this, that he'll judge them just as any other one. But there's almost a hint of this thought. Though he will judge them as any other one, 
it's very glaringly apparent to the man lying there on the deathbed that there is a difference between Dan and between the other sons. Though he will be permitted in that sense, Jacob looks at him and he sees something incomplete in the man that's standing before him. We'll deal with it a little more as we get further on, but let me say this, that it's, God's will for the Jewish people is not just that they occupy that plot of land in the Middle East. You understand that the promises that God made to Abraham were more than just earthly promises. Uh, Paul talked about it in the book of Galatians, and uh, he said this, that the promise was not made unto seeds as of many, but unto seed as of one, and to thy seed. And by the way, let me just point this out. People say, well, it don't make a big deal whether the Bible, this Bible's a little different, that Bible's a little different. Paul has an entire theological argument based upon one letter in the book of Galatians. Have you ever noticed that? One letter makes the difference in the truth that he's applying. If that one letter was present there, it would change the whole substance of what Paul is dealing with. So evidently, God's pretty picky about even the letters that are used in the Word of God. And the truth that he's trying to convey is this, that though most definitely God did make promises to the seeds, God did make promises to the descendants of Abraham, that really those promises were bigger than that because they were not made to the seeds as of many, but to the seed as of one, and that seed is Jesus Christ. So the Jew that may enjoy all of the promises that God has made in an earthly sense is not complete in the eyes of God as to what He intends for them to be because it's not that they just be seeds, but it's that they stand in Him who is the seed. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there was a relationship here But Jacob acknowledges that that relationship is not what it ought to be. Listen to how Paul describes it in the book of Romans, chapter number 9. I think maybe this will shed some light. It says this, Paul says, I say the truth in Christ, in verse 1, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's talking about the Jews. He says, who are Israelites? to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Now, let's just take that in course and let's point to each of them. Who are Israelites. In other words, they're the descendants of Israel, of Jacob. To whom pertaineth the adoption. In other words, God has chosen these people as His nation, as His people. And the glory. They enjoyed seeing the glory of God on Mount Sinai and the Shekinah glory of God that sat down on the mercy seat once a year. And the covenants. God has made them certain covenants, certain promises. And the giving of the law. They have been enjoying or they have experienced the Old Testament law, and the service of God. They, unlike any other people group, have been employed, as, uh, the Levites in particular, in the work and service of the Jehovah God of Israel and the promises that God has made to them. Whose are the fathers? In other words, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and all of these patriarchs, they belong to the Jewish people. And of whom is concerning the flesh, he says, even Christ came. i got news for you. He wasn't you know, a long-haired, blue-eyed, white fella. He was a Jew when Christ came. He was a Jew. And Paul says, these are the people my heart breaks for, and this is why. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. What does he mean by that? What he means is this. There are two definitions that make a man part of Israel. One is that he's a Jew according to the flesh. And certainly the Jews according to the flesh have enjoyed all of these benefits. But here's the problem. 
Though they have all of these resources, they do not have a relationship with the God of their nation. He says this, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So in other words, you don't become a Jew by being born a Jew, so to speak, but to enjoy the the culmination of all that God intended for the Jewish people, a Jew would need to be a, a Jew not just according to the flesh, but according to faith. And not just by being a child of Abraham, but by being a child of Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. So we see a pretended relationship spoken of here. But I want you to notice not only his station in verse 16, look at verse 17, and notice the sabotage that's spoken of. It says in verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. Now, there's a lot I want to say about this, but let me just point this out, that there is one other time that we have seen the word serpent before this in the Word of God. Can I read it to you in Genesis chapter number 3? Verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. You see, the serpent is eternally connected with the idea of Satan in the Word of God. Go down to the book of Revelation, and he's called that old serpent. And the first time that Satan is ever mentioned in the Word of God, he's mentioned as a serpent the very next occasion in Scripture. Now, there's several times in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, let me give you the the last time in verses 14 and 15. It says this, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, we know that's Satan, he said unto Satan, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. So God looks at Satan and says, between you and humanity, you and the woman, between you and the, and the sons of Eve, there's going to be enmity. And he says this, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. By the way, this is the first messianic prophecy in the entire Word of God. And it points, by the way, not only to the first coming of the Lord Jesus in that it speaks of the woman's seed. You don't have to be a a, a biology major to understand that the woman does not have seed. So it's speaking of a a woman that will have seed apart from a man. So it's speaking of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we know that the Lord was not born uh, of a human father, but the Holy Ghost moved upon Mary and she conceived of the Holy Ghost. But it also speaks of the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes in power and in glory because it speaks of the bruising of the head of the serpent. And it also, by the way, speaks of the seed of the serpent. Now, we miss that sometimes. We think the idea of here's the woman and here's her seed and then here's Satan. But He says between her seed and thy seed... Who is the seed of the serpent? Well, if you study the book of Revelation, you know that there is one in whom Satan himself enters. That's an unusual thing, by the way. Demonic possession is not an unusual thing in the Bible. By the way, I don't think it's all that unusual in the day that we live in either. But satanic possession is a very unusual thing. We find that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. We find that there were times when Satan stood up against Israel. We know that uh, Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Ghost. But it always seems to be a very important task that Satan himself will employ himself in. And one of those is that he is going to indwell the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. It could be, and I believe it is, that there is a satanic connection here spoken of with the tribe of Dan. 
The very first occasion that the serpent is mentioned, it's in connection with Satan's plan. And the very next time that it's mentioned in the book of Genesis, it's mentioned in connection with Satan's plan because a sabotage is spoken of of the Jewish nation. Now, you, you can spend some time studying on this, and I've spent some time studying on it. And it'd take us ten sermons to really flesh this out in an appropriate way. But you'll find this to be true, that uh, in the midst of the tribulation period, or at the, let me back up, at the beginning of the tribulation period, a covenant is going to be established with the nation of Israel between the Antichrist, who is the world leader, and the tribe of Israel. Listen to how it's described in verse uh, 27 of Daniel chapter 9. It says, And he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, if you've studied your Bible, you know that that term week has the idea of the word seven. It does not necessarily mean seven literal days, but in the occasion of Daniel chapter 9, it's speaking of the 70 weeks or the 70 periods of seven, the 490 years that were determined upon the Jewish nation. And 69 of those have already passed with the cutting off of the Messiah. But now there is one week left, and that week is the seven-year tribulation period. And at the beginning of that, the Antichrist, he's going to confirm a covenant with the Jewish people for one week. We always hear people talking about hoping for peace in the Middle East, peace in the Middle East. I've got news for you. There's not going to be peace in the Middle East except when a false peace sets in. And then at the end of seven years, when the Prince of Peace comes to reign, there'll be peace. But the next peace that's taking place in the nation of Israel is going to be a false peace that is brokered and fostered by the Antichrist. Now, here's what I want you to consider for a moment. Who's going to agree to that peace? The book of the Word of God says this, that a mediator is not a mediator of one. <laughs> it's going to take two sides to agree to that peace. So that means that the nations of that part of the world will be on one side agreeing to the peace of the Antichrist. But that means also that the Jewish people will be agreeing to that covenant with the Antichrist. Some of the old commentators used to say that uh, this verse was a good indication that the Antichrist would come out of the tribe of Dan. I've had a lot of people ask me why the Antichrist would have to be Jewish. Well, the Bible never says that the Antichrist has to be Jewish. It simply surmised that for the Jews to be willing to follow him, he would have to be a Jewish individual. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't know that they, he would necessarily have to be a Jew for the Jews to follow him. I, I, I think there may be some kind of strong evidence pointing in that direction, but there's certainly nothing that says he has to be. But regardless of whether the Antichrist is a Jew and comes out of the tribe of Dan and a thousand other speculations that we make, there's one thing that we know to be absolutely scripturally concrete and true, that the Jews will agree to a covenant, and if that's the case, which we know it is, there'll have to be Jewish leaders that are willing to do that. And let me just say this, at the risk of being presumptuous, I don't believe that it's going to be born-again Jews <laughs> that are indwelt by the Holy Ghost that will do that. Let me just take a step further and say this. I think we can probably guarantee it will be the secular leadership of the Jewish nation that's going to agree to that. And in doing so, they'll bring about a time of persecution against the Jewish people that will make the Holocaust look like recess. The Word of God describes it. And uh, in no uncertain terms, it says this, and I, I'm, I'll read this, but I'm going to read it again later in Zechariah 13. It says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. You often read in the Word of God portions where, in, in the book of Matthew in particular, that 
Christ, whenever He's walking to the cross and the women are weeping for Him, and He, he says, He turns to Him and He says, Weep not for Me. He says, Weep for yourselves. If you knew the things that belong to the day of thy visitation, you'd weep. And He's speaking of the time of Jacob's sorrow and the tribulation period. He said this, that pray that it be not in winter time or on the Sabbath or when a woman is nursing, giving suck to a child that you have to take your flight. The verse that we read, in fact, me and uh, Miss Allen were talking about the other day, one of the verses you hear preachers preach about the rapture, and they'll say, well, you know, uh, bless God, one's taken and the other's left. And, you know, one's in the bed and, and one's taken and the other's left. And one's in the field and one's taken and the other's left. And you hear people talk about it all the time, one of these days I'm just going to be out of here. Well, I believe in the rapture. I believe one of these days in the twinkling of an eye will be changed and everything will be different. But i got bad news for you. That verse is not talking about the rapture. Because in Luke's account of it, and I believe it's Luke chapter number 17, the disciples go on to ask this question. They say, where, Lord? Stop and think about that for a minute. If they're asking where the man is going to be uh, taken, or I mean going to be left, at the risk of sounding rude, that's kind of a stupid question. If he says two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be in the bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding, one will be taken, the other left. They're not asking where is the one going to be that's left because the one that's left is going to be in the field and the bed or still grinding. What they're asking is where are they going to be taken? And Christ says this, Whithersoever the carcass is, thither shall the eagles be gathered together. I don't know about you, but that don't sound like the glories of the rapture to me. That rather sounds like the persecution against the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. Why is that going to happen? Well, we see a satanic connection, but we see a severed covenant spoken of. It says this in Daniel 9, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week... Now, how long is that? If a week is seven years in this reckoning, how long is in the midst, in the middle? That's after three and a half years. In the midst of the week, He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, He shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This is what the Word of God talks about as being the abomination of desolations that's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Christ spoke of that in Matthew chapter number 24. Can I give you another scriptural description of it in the book of Second Thessalonians? I don't have it in my notes, but let me turn over here and share it with you. It's described in this way in chapter number 2. The Bible says this, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, speaking of the day of the Lord. Except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I don't have time to flesh it all out because we'd need about six sermons. But the abomination of desolations had two fulfillments. It had a partial fulfillment under a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the Seleucidan generals. After Alexander the Great died, he left no heir, and so they split up the, the Greek empire into four different quarters, and his generals each took a quarter of them. And one of those was the Seleucidan quarter, and so Antiochus was the, uh, the heir of that throne. Antiochus hated the Jewish people. And he went into the temple that had been built whenever they had come back out of uh, exile in Babylon. He went into that temple, and he offered a pig on the brazen altar. And he took the blood and the juices from that and poured them over the copy of the Word of God that the priests had there in the temple. And he declared that they would not be allowed to worship anymore, that he was the God that they would worship. There was a partial fulfillment 
uh, in his day. But let me say that it looked forward even to a further fulfillment that will come in the time of the Antichrist. For the first three and a half years, here's what the Antichrist is going to say. He's going to say, here are the lines you can have here, the Arabs can have here. We'll finally have peace. Here's a place to build your temple. You can worship. You can have peace. You can be on your own. The Jews are going to say, hey, that sounds pretty good. And in the midst of that week, the Antichrist, I don't know whether literally or figuratively, I sort of believe literally, given the language of the Word of God, but he's going to walk into that temple in one sense or another, and he's going to say, all right, this worship is going to end. It's interesting that that, by the way, coincides with him setting himself up as the God of the world at large. You remember that there is a description given concerning the empire of the Antichrist described as a great whore that's sitting upon a seven-headed beast, and that in the midst of that week, that that beast is going to turn and rend the whore that sits upon his back. That's a picture of political Babylon, political uh, Roman Empire, the political empire of the Antichrist, turning on the religious aspect of the uh, kingdom of the Antichrist. And at that time, simultaneously, the Antichrist is going to stand up and say, I'm not just a man, I'm not just a world leader, I'm God on this earth and you'll worship me and me alone. Well, the Jews are going to be swept into that as well. And this covenant is going to be broken in the middle of that week. And there's going to be a time of persecution begin against the Jews like nothing we've ever seen. It says this in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, this is a vision that's being given to John, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out. And measure not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, I'm not a mathematician, all right? But if I do my math carefully, I understand that forty and two months is exactly three and a half years. It's described again in Revelation chapter 12 when it says this, And the woman, speaking of the Jewish nation, fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, if you divide that 1,260 days by 30, you get 42 months. (laughs) This same period of time. At the end, the last half of the seven-year tribulation period is going to be a time of oppression and persecution, violence, murder, and destruction for the Jewish people. And you know how it came about? Because the secular Jews in that day will agree to this covenant. I'm not trying to dismiss the sovereign hand of God. I understand God is doing this. I understand God is allowing this. But it doesn't change the culpability, the guiltiness of the secular Jews that were willing more to hold hands with the God of this world than they were to keep themselves separate and retain their holiness. We see his sabotage spoken of, but I'm glad it doesn't end there. Verse 18 is fascinating for a lot of reasons. One is because it doesn't fit at all. Look at verse number 18. Now, he's talking to Dan, right? I mean, he's talking to his son, Dan. He's saying, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. Here he sees Dan, the the secular Jew, sabotaging, betraying the nation of Israel. He sees the nation of Israel as a whole, as a rider upon a horse. And that, that snake bites out at the heel and casts its rider over. And then all of a sudden, verse 18, he says this, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? That doesn't fit at all, does it? Well, there's a reason it doesn't fit. This is an interruptive verse. 
And here's why. Because as Jacob looks forward, and I don't know whether he could really see it in his mind. I have no idea what the Holy Ghost did in his heart and, and, and eyes. I don't know if he could really see it, but in some way, he's looking forward in a many, many eons in the future. He's looking forward to a time filled with things that he can't fathom, but he sees the Jewish nation. He sees blood being shed. He sees the sabotage has been perpetrated upon his nation, upon his descendants. He sees all these things taking place. He sees the the rider being cast forth backwards in the air. And then all of a sudden, he sees a rider that's not scared of the snake in the path. All of a sudden, in a moment, almost like the sun bursting through the clouds, he sees the salvation that he had long waited for. Can I describe it to you? In Revelation chapter number 19, it says this, And I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath a name on his vesture and on his thigh. Uh, or he hath on his vesture and on his name, thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The very first time the word salvation appears in the Word of God is in this verse that sits right in front of us. As Jacob sees the utter destruction upon his descendants, all of a sudden in a moment, he sees the salvation of the Lord break through like the sun creeping through the darkened clouds to come and rescue the day. And you know that's that's how it's going to happen. You know that, right? As the armies of the Antichrist are gathered in the valley of Megiddo, to deal that final death blow to this pesky nation of Jews that have persecuted the world, that have been a scourge and a plague on all of humanity. They can finally, and you know, that's how they talk. Watch the news sometime. Watch the news sometime. And not all of them. I'm glad there's a lot of folks that, that love the Jewish nation. But listen, there is a stark anti-Semitism in the, in the world that we live in and in the nation that we live in. And when you hear them talk, and the way they talk is if they just get rid of Christians and Jews, the whole world be okay. That's how they think. They'll think all that much more uh, during the tribulation period. There they are, the armies of the Antichrist, gathered in that, in that valley. Napoleon called it the world's greatest natural battlefield. There they are, going to finally do away with those pesky Jews. And then all of a sudden the clouds break. And the Lord of glory comes with the armies of heaven behind him. You say, I don't know if I believe that. Well, if you believe your Bible, you'll believe that. That's exactly what it says in black and white in front of you. All of a sudden there is a triumphant deliverer that appears in the midst of their sabotage. What does that mean for the secular Jew? Well, it means this. Jacob looked forward and he saw the salvation of the Lord. But he saw not only the salvation of the Lord in the sense of the saving of an earthly nation, but I believe he looked and he saw the salvation of the Lord applied to the hearts of the secular Jew. This, I hope this answers some questions for you. You know, you hear people talk all the time about Isaiah. I believe it's chapter number 63 when it says a nation will be born in a day. You know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. It says, who hath heard of such a thing, you know, that, that a nation be born in a day? I hear people all the time reference 1948 as being the time when that happened. They say, well, you know, the Jewish nation was born in a day. But if you read the context of that very carefully, you'll see that that birth is not a physical birth. That birth is a spiritual birth. Well, I think God has a plan, don't you? I don't think God does things without a plan. I don't think God would call Abraham out of pagan darkness if he didn't have a plan for Abraham. 
I don't believe God would have made promises to Abraham's descendants if God didn't have a plan for Abraham's descendants. But God does have a plan for them. And the plan is described in this way in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. And, but the third part shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord, Jehovah, is my God. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, when Christ comes in power and in glory in that moment, the secular Jews that have been left in the land will look on Him. Zechariah says this, they'll look on Him whom they pierced and they'll mourn for Him. They, as a collective nation, will be stricken in the heart with a deep conviction over their rejection of the Son of God. And as a people in that moment, They'll look to Him as their Savior, as their salvation. You see, that's the plan that God has for the Jewish nation. Not to dismiss the rejection of the Messiah, but rather in grace, in grace, not in works, but in grace, to be willing to receive them when they look upon Him whom they've pierced and see in Him the salvation that they have for so many belabored years tried to earn for themselves to no avail. They'll look on Him, the one whom they've pierced, the one on whose thigh is written, King of kings, Lord of lords. And they'll understand in that moment, He's the one we crucified, but He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. There's no doubt about it now. He's the Messiah. He's the one that God has sent. And they'll look to Him to be their salvation. And in that day, a nation will be born. Not a nation of borders, not a nation of government, but a spiritual nation will be born on that day. Or we might say this, a nation will be born again spiritually on that day when the Jews look on Him whom they've pierced. And the salvation of the Lord is realized. You know what God said in the book of Jeremiah? He says, in that day, I'll not write my law on tables of stone, but I'll write my law on the fleshy tables of their hearts. On that day, He said, I, they'll be my people. I'll be their God. You remember in the uh, book of Hosea, the prophecy that's given, it's, it's kind of played out for us in a narrative with the life of Hosea and his, his wife Gomer. And, uh, you know, Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. And when he, when he has uh, their first child, uh, you know, he, he calls that, that child my child. And then the, the second child, he, he calls him not my child. And the third child, he gives an even harsher name for as as he began to realize that these children were not his own. They were the product of Gomer's unfaithfulness. And he says that you'll no more call me father. I'm not your father. You're not my child. Don't call me that. But God says this, there'll come a day uh, when they would no more call him Balaam. Talking about the Lord, but they'll call him Ishi, which means husband. They'll call him father. There'll be a relationship there one day as God brings the Jews not only back into the land, but he brings them into the Lord. And they call upon the Lord to be their Savior. Man, what a day that's going to be. Amen.